As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we will be this morning in the book of Genesis in chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, if you have trouble finding it, well, open your Bible and turn a page in. Um, This is Genesis in chapter 1. Before we read, though, would you please pray with me? Lord our God, uh, we want to be a people who, who worship, who bow, who kneel before the Lord, our Maker. You are our God, and we are your people. So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you teach us, guide us by your word to know what is true and to trust you more. We ask your grace in this through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is the book of Genesis in chapter 1. I want to take uh, this morning just these first three verses. So this will be a a short read, but a deep one. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. This is God's word. Now, if you were here with us last week, or even if you weren't, let me summarize, you'll know that we read these same opening verses a week ago, and our focus there that time was not just in the beginning, but even a little before, to before the beginning, where God was before the beginning. So before the beginning of creation, we have God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is already, always, love and glory in and of himself. And before the beginning, we looked at how God had done several things, namely that he promised eternal life, had chosen his holy family, had given saving grace even before the coming of sin, and had ordained the death of Jesus to save us from sin. All of this he had done before anything was even created. That was last week. Now this week, we get to look at God's work in creation, in the beginning, in all of its majesty and mystery. There's a lot here, so we're going to have to focus our attention at least a little bit. This morning, I want us to focus on a particular part of verse 2, where the text says that the earth was without form and void. What does that mean? That's our goal this morning. What does it mean that the earth was without form and void? As is often the case, it helps us to try to 
unpack these questions, to look at the, the words as we see them in the position of their wider context. So if we zoom all the way out to the whole book of Genesis, we would see that the book of Genesis is structured in a very clear, particular way by the author. The book is divided not by chapters and verses. Those sorts of things were added in later for our convenience. We're glad chapters and verses are in there because it helps us to know where we are. Uh, but the book is divided originally not by chapter and verse, but by the Hebrew word toledot. This word toledot is the mark of a transition into a new section in Genesis. Toledot roughly translates, at least in my Bible's translation, to the word generations. Or some other translations, you might see the word translated as the account of or the record of. In other words, this is what was born out of or this is what came out of such, such and such. And now that I've kind of alerted you to this, even though you may not know the Hebrew, you'll, you'll notice this as you read through Genesis on your, your own. We bump into this Toledot marker, this transition periodically throughout the book. So we'll see these are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah and so on. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. These are the generations of Shem. And that's how the writer kind of structures, funnels us to progress through the book. It's not just listing the lineage then of those people. It's telling us the story, the true story, the account of what happened to that people how the story unfolded from that point. And all of the Toledotes, all of the generation markers in Genesis are marked by a particular person or people, except the very first one. We find the first Toledote in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. If you look, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now, here's why I mention this. This is the reason why this matters for us now, that because these Toledotes open new sections of the book, but the first Toledote doesn't open the book. It's not Genesis 1-1, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That Toledo, that marker, starts in Genesis chapter 2. So what we see here, what we've read in Genesis 1, is not part of the Toledo generations. It comes before the Toledo, before the generations. We get to hear before what comes of the heavens and the earth, we get to hear the beginning of the heavens and the earth. So Genesis 1 doesn't follow the Toledo pattern. Genesis 1 instead follows a different word. It's not structured around the word Toledo, the generations. It's structured around the Hebrew word yom or days. And in Genesis 1, 
We're told what God does in day one, day two, day three, through day seven of creation. Each day, then, begins in the exact same way. If you're looking at a Bible page, you can scan your eye down and probably see how the, each of the paragraphs begin. It's in the very same way. Each day begins with the words, And God said... And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God said, let the waters be gathered, and so on. Now, we see the very first day, the first yom, begins in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. Now, this provides a bit of a puzzle for us then. Because now that the structural markers begin in verse 3, what are we to do with the stuff that comes before? How are we to understand verses 1 and 2, the things that come before the generations, before the days? How does this fit into the broader structure and message of, of Genesis? This is a big undertaking. It is no exaggeration to say that there has been, I was going to say centuries, but millennia by now of discussion about these opening sentences of Genesis. There's, there's myriads of interpretations about how best to read these. Some of those interpretations even have fancy names like gap theory, if you've ever heard of such a thing. We don't need to go into all of that, okay? I think in some ways that's a bit distracting. But there are two main approaches that have risen to the top about how to read these opening sentences. The two main approaches are these. Either these verses function as some sort of title, a summary of the actions that occur in the rest of the chapter, or these, these verses aren't a title, they're, they're an initial or preliminary act of creation before the days even begin. And both of these approaches, either that the opening verses are some sort of title or an actual action of God, both of those are possible. Each of those have their own merits, people that adhere to them who are faithful to the scriptures and such. But uh, just for transparency, I lean much more toward this second approach, that what we've read here in the opening sentences is the first act of God in creation. There's a bunch of technical, grammatical reasons, again, uh, for this that we don't need to go into all of those. But I will mention at least two reasons why I think this is the good and best approach. And they're connected to the days that follow. First of all, we can see that in day one, which begins in the text in verse three, the first act of God there is for God to say, let there be what? Light, right? first act there is for God to say, let there be light. Now, it seems odd that if verses 1 and 2 are some sort of title, title summary, that it would summarize there as being darkness over the face of the deep. 
Why would that be a tunnel when, uh, a title when the rest of it seems to lead the reader to conclude there's something other happening from here on? The description in the opening verses have, have the earth described as being formless and, and void. That doesn't seem like it fits in the creation day the structure, that, much less summarize it. But there's another reason. In verse 3, er, not verse 3, day 3, if you look down, where does that begin? In verse 9, verse 3 Sorry, day three, we'll get there in time. Day three focuses on the land and the seas. And if we're a careful reader, we'll notice that God does not actually make the material substance of the earth on that day. He doesn't actually make the material of the land and the seas. In verse nine, it says, he gathers the water in certain places. He gathers some sort of water that seems to be already there to at this point now delineate dry land from seas, but the the substance of land and water is already there because it seems to have already been created back in verses 1 and 2. The days of Genesis are still consistent with with God creating the earth in seven days in in a very particular way. We'll get at that in the coming weeks. But, But before day one of creation, there seems to be an initial creation event that sets up all of the rest of God's creative work that he is about to do. So we hear then in these opening verses, in this first act, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, God created all the stuff up there and all the stuff down here. You know, that doesn't go into all the particulars about what exactly or how that exactly played out. It just says, you created the heavens and the earth. And then immediately the text zooms into the, to the, to the down here, the earth. Now, what does the earth look like in this initial creation? What is the earth's condition when it's created? The down here is described this way in verse 2. The earth was without form and void And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in the down here, we have darkness, the deep, or the waters, and earth, or land. The down here is described as being without form and void. Now, we get to our question, what does that mean? What does that mean that the down here, the earth, is without form and void? Because I don't know about you, to me, initially, those words formless and void sound like it's just empty, blank. And that is not quite what the text means. Okay, I know... 
I know here that I've already mentioned two Hebrew words, throwing you for a loop or going back. If you're not a language person and you're growing, groaning already, well, get ready to groan a little bit more. I'll try to be kind, okay? I mentioned the Toledot of the generations, the Yom of the days. Let me give you just two more Hebrew words. These are the last Hebrew ones for today, I promise. But there's a reason why I need to mention these in the original language. The English words for without form and void in the Hebrew are the words tohu and bohu. The earth was tohu vabohu. Now, what's the first thing you notice about those two words? If I wait long enough, a Presbyterian will say something. Uh, They rhyme, right? I know this. We're not in second grade. They rhyme, right? They rhyme, and that's intentional. This was not an accident. The writer could use any sorts of words, uh, but these, these words rhyme. They're a couplet. They are paired together as a sort of unit, and we're familiar with this already in English, right? We have words that, that function together like this in, in a lot of ways, like the words, or uh, phrase, I guess, lovey-dovey. Oh, lovey-dovey. Or a flip-flop, or, or razzle-dazzle. Okay. Two words that are different words, but that are paired together to function as a kind of a single idea. So, so it's easy for us in English to miss the connection between the words formless and void because they sound different. But in the Hebrew, they're meant to be together. So some uh, translators have tried to get at that connection, so they, they render it with, with things like these. The earth was a waste and a wild. Or the earth was confusion and chaos. Or the earth was desert and disorder. Each of these is trying to help us get at the original idea that that the earth is more than just a blank canvas here. It's tohu and bohu. And tohu and bohu... Those words appear together two other times in the scriptures, once in Jeremiah and once in Isaiah. In the Isaiah passage, it's in Isaiah 34, the Lord is speaking there of tohu and bohu as a result of judgment on the land, at least in that context. Isaiah 34, let me find it. The verse 10, I'll begin in verse 10. Here's the words we hear. From generation to generation, it, the land, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever, but the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion, or tohu, confusion over it, and the plumb line of emptiness, or bohu. So here in Isaiah, we hear a land that's in tohu and bohu, and in that context, wild animals have sort of taken over the land. We we had civilized cities with buildings and all the structures of things, and all of that has kind of crumbled and is now occupied by a family of owls and hawks and porcupines. That's my favorite one. The porcupines have moved in. So a a, a connection that might be more similar to what we're familiar with. Have you ever seen uh, an old abandoned farmhouse? You know, and and it's got a, a tree kind of sprouting out of one of the windows. 
And you go, how's that even, where's the bottom of that tree in there? And, and there's maybe a, a family of raccoons that has moved in and what was probably once the kitchen maybe. And, and it just maybe looks like it's been being eaten alive by vines. That is a state of tohu and bohu. So my best go at the meaning of these opening words of Genesis is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a briar and a barrens. The earth was a briar and a barrens. That's not to say that there were any actual plants on the earth yet, necessarily. It's to convey the condition of the earth, the sense of it that that it's this patchy, tangled, functionally useless mass. To be clear, that doesn't mean the the initial state of the earth in Tohu and Bohu was, was run down. There's not time for that yet. Nor is it a result of judgment or punishment from God. There is no sin yet to be judged or punishment. Nor is it a result of some sort of battle of chaos that was pre-existent. And this chaos is in conflict with God and that he somehow needs to, to win over. It's just simply saying that this is the, this is the initial creation from God. And in the coming days, days one through seven, he will begin to form this tohu bohu creation into something useful and beautiful and good. It's fitting then, I think, to compare compare God in the opening of Genesis to to a potter at his wheel. Have you seen this happen? Potter sitting at the wheel takes the raw material, which for God is ex nihilo, or out of nothing, takes the raw material and and just smacks down this, this lump of clay. And when it's complete, it's going to be this intricate, ornate, lovely vase. But in the beginning, on the wheel, it's, it's tohu and bohu. It's some ooey-gooey, clumpy, bumpy, lifeless lump until the potter begins to pump the wheel and shape the world. Now, at this point, some may say, maybe even some of you are thinking this, Hold on. Something about this cannot be right. You know, are you telling me that God created something that was not initially perfect and good? I mean, isn't that the whole point of this opening of Genesis? That's the running line. God said, God created, and it was good. This doesn't seem to fit with that. And, and, and I would say, first of all, if that's what someone is thinking, good job for thinking. We like critical thinking. 
Let me just point out, though, that, that God pronounces good upon his creation when each part of that creation is complete, not at its inception. So we don't have time to go into all this now. We'll have to wait for the coming weeks whenever we get to this part. But in day six, when God creates man, creates Adam, he specifically at one point says Adam's condition is not good. He's created Adam, but something about his condition is not good because he's alone. And so then God creates Eve. Then creation of mankind is complete, and then he pronounces it, ah, very good. We still can say that God creates, created all things good when his creative work in each step of it was complete. But in the beginning, the earth in tohu and bohu is still incomplete, not yet done. The Lord speaks to this in Isaiah chapter 45. There's a mention of creation in tohu. 45, let me find it. Verse 18, this is speaking about the Lord. The Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, or tohu, he formed it to be inhabited. Meaning that tohu is not the last state. Emptiness is not the intended state of the world. He didn't create it empty to be a formless, void state. He formed it to be filled with inhabitants, and then it would be in its good condition. That's his intent in these things. Now, there may be some who hear all of what I've just said and think, okay, <laughs> great. I guess maybe this is sort of kind of interesting to learn that the earth at creation is a briar and a brambles, a, a waste and a wild, formless and void, however we put it. But, but what does this have to do with our world now? I mean, this has been a rough week, hasn't it? We heard of yet another tragic incident of school shooting this week. There was a report uh, dropped by another large Christian denomination of widespread sexual abuse that had been happening for decades within its churches. The abortion debate is still raging. The Russian-Ukrainian conflict is three months in and counting with no signs of stopping. Inflation is rising. Gas prices are climbing. It's Memorial Day weekend when we set our minds on the many that we have lost in war. And that doesn't even mention all the quiet, private wrestles that people are going through. 
people in the world are hurting. And we're here talking about the shape of the prehistoric earth. I mean, read the room, preacher. How disconnected and irrelevant can we possibly be? To that, I would say, there is something to that thought if, there's something to that thought if all of this is mostly just looking at the physical structure of some ancient globe. But that is not what this text is really about. Here in Genesis, well, even in the whole Bible, this is not mainly about us. This is about God, about our God. So the opening of Genesis isn't just about creation. It's about the Creator and the way that the Creator God interacts with His creation. What we learn here, even in these very first sentences of the Bible, is, is that God didn't just make the earth, shape its edges, and then send it off hurtling through the abyss of the cosmos. That's called the divine clockmaker theory, by the way. It's deism, that there was some sort of God being or beings who, who, who made, molded the world, and then wound it up like a clock and just set it to tick-tock, tick-tock off on its own. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what this text teaches. This gives us something so much better. Because if we look closely in these opening sentences, God is not just creating here in the beginning. There's one other action, one other verb that's mentioned in these opening lines. It's at the end of verse 2 that God hovers. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we, so we have this earth created in tohu and bohu, covered in the darkness and in the deep of the waters, and over all of it, the Spirit of God hovers. Now, to me, the word hover makes me think of things like, I don't know, a helicopter, a UFO, maybe, some sort of drone, just sort of hanging up above. That's not the sense of this word. This word talks about hovering in the way a, a bird hovers. We can listen to the way the word is used in the rest of the scripture, uh, God speaks this way in Deuteronomy chapter 32 uh, of his own people, Israel. This is the Lord speaking of his people. Verse, uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. Listen for the hovering. He, that is God, found him, his people. God found his people, Israel, in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. 
like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, bearing them on its pinions. In the beginning here, we have the Spirit of God doing something similar to this, hovering, fluttering over creation like an eagle hovers, flutters over her eaglets in the nest. These opening words of the Bible are really setting the tone of what we're to think about God. Not just to see the fact of creation, but to see God's God's care for the world that he makes. And also to, to give us some sort of anticipation about what God will do with this world he's made. He's hovering to then want to watch that eagle go from fluttering into full-on flight. This shows us the character of God from the very beginning. That he's a God who brings light out of darkness, who brings order out of chaos, form out of formlessness, worth out of waste, who forms a garden of Eden out of a briar of the earth. And in the course of time, by God's plan in Jesus, will bring life out of death, cleansing out of sin, good out of evil. This is our God. And none of this is meant to make us, you know, passive watchers of the world, that we just sit back and gawk at trouble, trouble with our hands shoved deep in our pockets, or, or to become content with sin we see either in the world or in ourselves. But this does give us good reason to hope, challenging us, encouraging us to submit to the ways of the Lord, to be humbled before his great power and to learn patience, to trust this potter as he shapes the clay, the spirit as he hovers over the face of the waters. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to see these things deeply in a, in a heart of belief that you are the potter and we are the clay. Would you shape us according to your, to your good will and purpose? We lift our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord who makes the heavens and the earth. Help us to bow in reverence and to work in diligence knowing that you are over all things. And we give you praise in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.